2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to take the time this evening to read the entire chapter, and then we're going to take a text from it. So let us hear together the word of the Lord. 2 Peter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So there's the origin of that expression that we often quote in prayer, like precious faith. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance." For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory 
when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. It is the word of God. And may the Lord add his blessing to the public reading of his word for his name's sake. Our text this evening is verses 2 and 3 of this chapter. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. In the chapter that we have read, we encounter some thoughts that are really beyond our ability to comprehend. We encounter the concept of God's divine power why it was necessary for the apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit to add the word divine to the idea of God's power. We encounter the profound thought of being partakers of the divine nature. I don't pretend to be able to explain to you all that that expression entails. But there are also other things in the chapter that are equally challenging. Not the least of which is the language at the end of the chapter where Peter said that he and those who were with him in the Holy Mount of Transfiguration heard God's voice audibly. So, you know, there are a lot of people today that say that they hear God's voice as they're driving down the road or wherever, whatever they're doing. But Peter is saying, no, we heard God's voice audibly. We heard it. But then he said, we have a more sure word of prophecy. What? Than hearing audibly the voice of God? Yes, that is what Peter meant to say we have the inspired word in our text this evening 
we come then to deal with the flowing out of this concept of grace and peace being multiplied. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians that he was what he was by the grace of God. Paul reflected in that passage on the course of his previous life, on the way in which he persecuted the church of God. So he acknowledged that if salvation was on the basis of human merit, he never would have been saved. For someone like Paul to be saved, to be transformed from a fierce opponent of the gospel to a defender and proclaimer of the gospel required the intervention of God's power. But Paul's message to the Corinthians was that that is the situation for every descendant of Adam, not just for Paul. No one has any hope of salvation apart from God's intervention. But there is another conclusion. If Paul was saved only by the intervention of God's power, then Paul would continue in that condition only on the basis of the same power. In other words, Paul could not hold on to his salvation. But he could not lose that which God's power achieved in his life. The inspired apostle Peter made the same point in our text this evening. He wrote to those who found deliverance from the bondage of a works religion. He wrote to people who were converted out of Judaism. Peter wanted his readers to remember the gospel truth always. He desired that when attacks would come from within the church or from without the church, the believers would remember that they came into the church solely through the operation of God's power. So if their position in Christ's church was not the result of anything that they did, then their continuance in Christ's church would not be the result of anything that they would do. The basis of their contentment then was to be in the work of Christ that he did for them and that he did in them. The statement that Peter wrote in our text was one of those profound thoughts to which I've already alluded with which he began this epistle. His argument was that since God's power 
has delivered his people from their bondage. And since that power has given those people everything they need in order to live for Christ, then they should take full advantage of those blessings. Can't help but think of that line in our scripture lesson this evening in Genesis 45, when Joseph said that God had sent him before into Egypt to save the lives of his family members by a great deliverance. Peter's desire for the people who would read his words, and for us, for we have read them, was that they would advance in the knowledge of Christ. He wanted them to continue developing as Christians. That's a lifelong process. It doesn't come to a certain point and then plateau or stop. He wanted his readers to grow up. He wanted them to become mature in the faith of Christ. So this prologue to the epistle was to lay down again the emphasis that the foundation of Christian living is outside human ability. You cannot live for Christ as long as you seek to do so in your strength or by following a list of your rules or your principles. You can live for Christ only by the same power that brought you from darkness to light. To do battle against the enemies of the gospel, and there were many in Peter's day, requires that you have life on the inside. In these verses at the beginning of his second epistle, Peter presented foundational truth concerning the believer's life. So this evening, we come to this text to consider the theme of grace's persevering power. Grace's uh, preserving power, not persevering. Grace's preserving power. Now here was the source of joy, Peter said, for those who believe in Christ. They were the objects of God's power. Something to contemplate this evening. That if you trust in Christ, it is because God's power has operated in your soul. You are the objects of God's power. The power that has no defect. The power that never fails to achieve God's purposes. It's an important truth that we need to remember every day. God knows what he's doing with us. God can keep that in those memorable words of the Apostle Paul. God can keep that which we have committed unto him against the coming of the day when Christ shall appear. We're thinking of that day this morning, that forward look at the Lord's table to the crowns. 
The day when Christ shall appear, God is able to keep what we have committed to him against that day. But there's a tendency among the Lord's people, and you may find it in yourself, to drift away from that thought. Because life is made up of recurring routines. You follow the routines of life. And there are certain things that you must do in the midst of those routines. If you don't, they won't get done. So every day there are tasks that you must accomplish. And they are tasks many times that have no discernible spiritual aspect. Now perhaps there are people who ponder how they can glorify God while doing laundry. But I venture to say that if there are such people, they're in a very small minority. It's just a task that has to be done. There are tasks that you must do that are part of the routine of life. And they come around with almost crushing frequency. Years ago, when we lived at another house in North Phoenix, we had grass, Bermuda grass. And if you know anything about Bermuda grass, you know that during the hot time of the year, it grows very fast. So I would be out there in the high heat mowing the grass and know that within three or four days, I would be out there doing it again. Which is one of the reasons why I said when we looked for another place, one of the requirements was that it not have grass. And that was a sacrifice for my wife, who comes from the Midwest, and she likes the look of grass. But that's just one of the tasks that goes on all the time. It's just part of life. But the danger is that we tend to translate those routines into the spiritual realm and conclude that if we do certain things of what appear to be a spiritual nature, then we will improve our salvation. But that thinking produces actually the opposite. It produces spiritual impotence. Peter did not urge his readers to do the first thing in spiritual development until he reminded them that they were believers as a result of God's power and that they would continue in that capacity on the same basis. So many people short-circuit the teaching of the chapter and they come right down to verse 5 giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and so on through that list. And so they set about trying to figure out how they can do that. And almost always they end up in despair and defeat because they skip the first part. What is the reason they're in the position to do such things? 
It is the power of God. Christian living then, and many times I heard Dr. Alan Cairns say these words, Christian living rests on right thinking about the gospel. Years ago, sitting in seminary class, hearing him speak about that, Christian living is a matter of right thinking, using the mind to think rightly, not to make things up, but to think according to what God has revealed. So you can only live as a Christian in this world so full of perversion as you consider the truth that God's power has given you everything that you need. I was reading today about the woke culture that has permeated our military in this country. And it's very disheartening to read it, to read the things that are being done to really dumb down military preparedness to fight a war. We can only live as Christians in the face of such things by considering the truth that God's power has given us everything. So we read in verse 2 about grace and peace, the increase of the stream of grace and peace in the life of a believer comes about according to the power of God. God is working in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So in our text, Peter has a three-part message for us this evening. And we come to the first part, freedom's fountain. Before we say anything about the effect of God's power, we have to focus on its reality. The expression that we confront in our text is striking for its rarity and for its significance. We read in verse 3 about his divine power. The word divine is the adjective form of the word for God. It occurs in only two other places in the New Testament. One is in the next verse, in verse 4, where it modifies nature. Speaking about believers being partakers of the divine nature. The other reference is in Acts chapter 17. Let's turn to that portion. Acts chapter 17. And look at verse... Uh, Acts chapter 17, look at verse 19. And they took him, that is Paul, and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. 
For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, we would know therefore what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear of some new thing. So they wanted to hear what Paul had to say, just another one in the list of speakers that they would install in the rostrum there on Mars Hill. But Paul spoke to them as no one ever spoke to them. And he came down in verse 28 to speak about the fact that in him, in the Lord, in this unknown God that they had an altar to worship, in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The whole idea of the the, uh, divine power, the word divine, in our text refers to the full extent of God. It was an emphasis on the triunity of God so that the power of which we read in our text comes from God in the fullness of his sacred persons. And the word for power is the word from which we get our word dynamite. Peter reminded his readers that this power of God of which he spoke to them is overwhelming. It is explosive. In the middle of the 19th century, there was a great public works project here in the West It was the idea that the continent could be united by laying railroad tracks from the east, from the Mississippi River, and have them come out at the Pacific Ocean so that there were parties that began at opposite ends and they built, it's an amazing thing that The engineering was such that they actually met. Because you could see how just a slight variance would lead to a huge error at the end. But when I read about what they did, especially in the Sierra Nevada, they had to blast through the mountains. They had to use dynamite. A lot of men, a lot of workers lost their lives because of the explosive nature of what they were working with. Here, Peter was saying, this is the power of God. It is explosive. It doesn't just make a slight alteration. 
Nothing can stand against this power. Paul reflected on this power in the salvation of a single soul. Let us turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and to verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the, notice how he piles up the words here, the exceeding greatness of his power. He didn't just say of his power, or the greatness of his power, but the exceeding greatness of his power to usward. Paul was saying to the Ephesians, to usward who believed. There were people in Ephesus who had been worshipers of the great goddess Diana. But they had left that life behind because of the exceeding greatness of God's power, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Here is the measure of this power. It's the power that raised Christ from the dead, never more to die. So to save a single soul, Paul said, required the application of the same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead. If you have trusted in Christ, it is because of the application of that power. It's the power of which Peter spoke in our text. The divine power that is the source of every spiritual blessing. I say it is the fountain of freedom. And this fountain flows from the grace and peace of which we read in the second verse of the chapter. Because true freedom in this context means deliverance from the bondage of guilt and corruption. And that deliverance comes only through the visitation of God's power. One commentator put it this way, to give grace to a graceless soul is a work of God's infinite power. There being so much unworthiness guiltiness and opposition to hinder that work in all the elect. When that divine power overwhelms a sinful soul, there's nothing that can or will resist it. So springing from the fountain of divine grace and mercy through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord is the overwhelming power of God. That's the first thing. 
The second thing in our text is redemption's reach. Redemption's reach. For this text teaches us that when a sinner becomes the object of divine power, that person receives everything that is needed to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. Everything. Now, the fullness of those gifts does not appear immediately, usually, or even in a very short time. But as surely as an infant has everything inherently that is needed for development, so it is true that spiritual infants have everything that they need for their spiritual growth. Here is how far the work of divine power reaches, Peter said. The deliverance of a soul from bondage leads that soul to a different life. The apostles knew nothing of the kind of so-called Christianity that is popular today, where people profess that they believe in Jesus but they continue to live like the rest of the world. Now the new life develops through a process. There is a process of growth, but it is there. What is Peter's emphasis here in our text? It is that the power of the Godhead, the power of the Godhead, has given every person in whom it operates all things, here's a bold statement, all things that are needed for life and godliness. In other words, Peter is saying, you don't need to pray that God will give you those things. He's already given them to you. So that's the reach of the word all. He has given all things, all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Here is how far the work of Christ reaches. It conveys to the soul of a sinner everything which that soul needs for life and godliness. So what you need to live for Christ, you've already received. It's already available to you there. Through the new birth, by the Spirit of God, you received the things you can never lose because Christ has secured them through his own sacrifice upon the cross. What's the problem? What was Peter addressing? The problem is that sometimes those things that God's power has given fall into disuse. That through backsliding, through failing to pay attention to those things, they don't shine as brightly. But his message is, you can't lose them. They're there. 
God has given them. So that anyone who is the object of divine power can never be lost. Peter wrote, those things are yours. They are what you need to live for Christ in this world. Now, how do we know those things are so? That's the third thing in the text. Wisdom's witness. Both verses, verses 2 and 3, emphasize the knowledge of God and of Christ. Notice verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And there's an echo there of the passage that we read in Luke 24 in preparation for the Lord's Supper this morning, where Jesus appeared to his disciples. And what was his word to them? Peace be unto you. So Peter could hear the echo of that greeting in this inspired word that the Spirit of God gave him, grace and peace be multiplied. Here's a prayer for us to pray for the Lord's people, for the Lord's church in this world. Let grace and peace be multiplied through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So the multiplication of grace and peace comes through that knowledge of God. The more you know God, The more you know Jesus, our Lord, the more you come into contact with that grace and that peace. This knowledge of which we read here, both in verse 2 and in verse 3, is an intensive expression. It's an intensive form of the knowledge that you gain by your experience. I've said before that knowledge has two major concepts in the New Testament. There is that knowledge that you get by divine revelation. That if you don't receive that revelation, you don't have that knowledge. But there is also knowledge you gain by experience. That's another word in the original language. That is this knowledge which is the knowledge you gain by experience, is not divorced from divine revelation. But it's the knowledge that you develop as you exercise your faith and use the means of grace that God has given to you. Now notice specifically, it is the knowledge, and I love this part of verse 3, the knowledge of one, the one who has called us to glory and virtue. That's the life to which God has called his people. He has called us unto glory and virtue. So the exercise of this divine power as Peter wrote about it, is with the end in mind that those whom that power has touched are already on the road to glory. And they cannot fail to arrive at that destination. They cannot 
It would make a mockery of the whole Bible to suggest that people who have begun on the road to glory somehow will miss it. The scriptures tell us that God will ensure that every one of his people will arrive safely at the Father's house. How wonderful to think of those who are already there, those whom we know and those whom we never met, but all through history. People went through those routines that I've talked about earlier. Read years ago about the uh, pioneers in Texas in the early part of the 20th century, establishing homesteads in Texas in the area known as the Hill Country, around what is now Austin. And many people went there, the promise of cheap land and so on, but they went there, and many of them were people who came from places in the east where they already had enjoyed the benefits of electricity, But when they went to Texas, there wasn't any. And so they had to carry water from wells. They had to engage in the hand washing of all their clothing. It was a difficult task. But the message of Peter is, This divine power has touched his people and put them on the road to glory and they will arrive at that destination. Grace is preserving power. Grace would be nothing if it could not preserve those who are its objects. Grace's preserving power means that you can rest upon that which Peter has written in our text and you can make full use of all those things that God's divine power accord to you, accords to you. May the Lord give grace then, give us grace tonight to make use of those things that pertain unto life and godliness. And so to continue on, even in the midst of crushing routine, as those who know that they are on the path to glory. Let us bow together in prayer. Our gracious Father and our eternal God, we thank Thee again tonight for the grace that Thou hast shown to us. We ask, O Lord, that Thou would be pleased to draw our attention more and more to these things that seem to us beyond our comprehension, to the power that Thou hast used in our lives to transform us from those who are on the way to hell to those who are on the way to glory. 
Oh, Father, write the word upon our hearts. May it be a word that encourages thy people, that grace having begun that good work in the people whom thou hast chosen from all eternity to be in Christ, that it will finish that work. And how we praise thee for all those in whom that work is finished, who wait for the day of resurrection. O Lord, we pray that thou wilt stamp thy word upon our hearts tonight. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.